right. Well, I just decided to preach on grace. No, I can't switch that fast. Tonight we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and I want to begin tonight uh, with something that I don't do very often because I don't really like it when people do it when I'm at a service. Uh, Because I think it feels a little contrived, but I'm going to be a little contrived tonight. So uh, we'll just let's just all play along. Okay Uh, Tonight I'd like to begin by asking a, a, a series of questions and these are hand raising questions Okay, so hand raising questions and they have to do with the gospel and evangelism now evangelism the word evangelism in fact comes from uh the word that we get for gospel proclamation. So to evangelize is to gospelize, to, to share the essence of the gospel. And so these questions are related, are related to that tonight. So first of all, how many of you here think that your efforts in personal evangelism are what they should be? Would you go ahead and raise your hand right now? Okay, I would keep mine down as well with you right now. Okay, second question. How many of you wish you were more effective as a witness for Christ. Okay, I'm with you there. Okay, very good. Third, if it would help lead someone to salvation, how many of you would consider adjusting something personal but unimportant in your life? Okay, here's the last one. If a Saturday night message might help you become a better witness for Christ, How many of you would listen very attentively to the message? Okay, very good. Because that's what I hope this message is for us this weekend, a collective uh, strengthening and encouraging in our commitment to sharing Christ in our spheres of influence. And this is something that, if I was to judge my pastoral ministry here at Bethel, I would say this is something that has been somewhat of a weakness in my ministry here. I don't feel like I have adequately equipped or even modeled this for you in the way that I wish that I had or would or will in the future. Uh, But I admire pastors who do. And one of my heroes is a guy named Charles Spurgeon who's been dead for 100 years or more. But he used to say things like this to his church. If there be any point in which the Christian church ought to keep its fervor at a white heat, it is concerning missions. If there be anything about which we cannot tolerate lukewarmness, it is the matter of sending the gospel to a dying world. Now, most of us look at a statement like that and think, I can't save the world. We can't save the world by ourselves, but we can save the world by us, our little corner of the world, our village, our neck of the woods. This is something, this is some place that every Christian can have a profound gospel missional influence in. But I think that most of us, myself included, don't think nearly enough about that. We get into our lives and we think that we get into our, all our stuff and The whole matter of seeing the people around us as image bearers of God, souls that God gave to them, souls that are going to spend eternity somewhere. We just see them as people like all the rest of the people and and they're going to die and they're going to go somewhere. And there are only two options. 
There is heaven for eternity and the new earth, and there is hell. Everybody, that is true. Six billion people living on the earth right now, it's true for every one of us. And so this mindset and this perspective of life and Christian worldview in terms of evangelism is something that we desperately need. And it clearly is something that the Apostle Paul had down perhaps better than anybody else. And so this is what 1 Corinthians now is bringing us to. We've been in the series. We're now to chapter 9. And chapter 9 is, is basically an autobiography from Paul where he gives his own life as an example of how to live missionally, how to live with the priorities of the Great Commission guiding the way that you live your life. And so what the, was going on in Corinth, and the reason that Paul does this, is that there, were, there, was, there was in the church at Corinth people who were not living by the right priorities. There were people that were viewing their personal uh, freedoms, their enjoyment of those personal freedoms in gray areas, things that we would call Christian liberty. These are more important to me than my brother and his feelings and his walk and the unity of the church and the testimony of the church and the community. These things don't matter because I must eat idle meat, which was the issue that we've been spending our time talking about. So the strong, who are those that have freedom in these areas, were not accommodating the weak in any way. They were demanding their rights, and they do what they want to do. And so the strong had right doctrine, bad attitude. And you know what? It almost doesn't matter how much right doctrine we have. If our doctrine doesn't shape our attitude, is it really the right doctrine? Because love is a doctrine too, isn't it? And so there was this tension in the church at Corinth. And so Paul writes now, gets to chapter 9, and says, listen, let me just tell you the way that I approach these things. And so this chapter, we've been seeing how he approaches matters of Christian liberty and what matters to him and how he is willing to set aside his own agenda for the sake of the gospel. And so this is now what he gets to uh, in these verses we're studying tonight where he basically leaves the whole matter of inner Christian relationships in the church, and he moves to a Christian's relationship with those outside the church, those that are not Christians and therefore are not under God's grace. So let's begin now reading in verse 19. I'm just going to read the whole passage we're studying tonight, and then we'll go back and uh, take it apart. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not because, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things... To all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. So, this is the passage that we want the Holy Spirit to press upon our hearts tonight and to change us. And I pray that He does that now as we 
come now to ask the question, okay, what does that mean? What is that talking about? And you can understand really this whole passage by getting verse 22. Verse 22 is really one of the high points in the entire book of 1 Corinthians. And you maybe have heard this verse before. Here's what he says. I have become all things to all people so that by all means I might save some. Now, what is the word that you see repeated there? It's there three times. This is a, not a trick question. The word is all. All things, all people, all means. All is a pretty all-encompassing word, don't you think? What's not in all? All is in all. If it's not in all, then it's, it's not all. <laughs> so all is a big word. And we see just a, just a huge encompassing statement that Paul makes here, really amazing. So let's just kind of walk through the, the three alls here and understand what verse 22 is. And then I think we'll be able to understand the rest of the passage. First of all, he says that he has become all things. Now, Beth will get this. The word become, which he says again and again throughout this passage, it, it, it doesn't mean that I literally become them as much as I seek to relate to them where they are. I become, I go to where they are culturally, religiously, and some other things we're going to talk about. I become them. I become all things. So he's saying here that Paul willingly adapts himself to the particular culture and perspectives and uh, unique characteristics of either the individual or the city or the broader culture community that he is trying to reach. So think acclimate, think adapt. It means it means to change. So I thought of a chameleon as a, maybe a visual illustration of this, that a, the chameleon which adapts to the culture that it's in, only the, the chameleon does it to hide. The, the missionary, the Christian, does it in order to build affinity with the person or culture that they're trying to reach. Now, in saying this, he is not saying uh, immoral categories. He's not saying, I will do anything and become anything. I will become a murderer to reach the murderers. I will become a thief to reach the thieves. He's not talking about that. We don't, we don't, uh, we don't cross moral categories in order to do this. But he is saying, other than that, there is no length to which I will go in adapting myself to where they are at so that I might save some of them. So we see this tremendous flexibility that Paul is personally willing to make in order to reach people with the gospel. He contextualizes himself to where the unsaved are at, their lives, their worldview, their joys, their pains, their perspectives. So I have become all i have adapted myself i willingly contextualize myself into the lives of all people secondly let's talk about this all people have you noticed that not everybody is the same 
Look at the person next to you. Some of you have been married to that person long time. You are not the same and you're glad about that, right? We are not the same. You think about the world, six billion people. How many ethnic groups and people groups and national groups and all the rest? This is something when I was in China, I just thought I stood at Tiananmen Square and there was just hordes of people walking everywhere. And I just looked around at that whole scene and I just thought, this world is a big place. It is a massive place. So many different, totally different lifestyles and cultures. And we could even think about Northwest Indiana and even our church. And let's go with Northwest, Northwest Indiana, where in this melting pot that we have here, and this is a very unique community that we are ministering in, there are so many different kinds of people groups and perspectives. And like Pastor Travis told me an interesting statistic. He said that the, some national or local survey or whatever said that uh, in our community, there are upwards of 70,000 people who go home from work and speak a language other than English. That's in Northwest Indiana. Huge diversity, language and culture and Life, massive, billions of people, and they're all living in some cultural setting in which Jesus Christ wants to get with the message of the gospel because he came to save the world. And so, as we sing as children, red and yellow, black and white, they are all precious in Jesus' sight. And so the Christian and the biblical church, and like Paul, is going to say, you know what? We got all kinds of people in this world, and we have all kinds of people in this community. What adapting do we need to do? What contextualizing do we need to do in order for them to come to understand and receive the gospel and to be saved? Why? Because they're going to spend eternity somewhere. And who is God called to reach Northwest Indiana and the world? Bethel Church and Harvest Baptist Church and every other biblical preaching church in this community. We are the ones that are called to proclaim the truth to the community. How is that going to happen? This is why I think this is so important. This is a formula for how Paul did it and how I think as a church we increasingly need to do it. Good place for an amen. Now we could say to Paul, wow, that is, that's a radical statement, dude. I, I have become all things to all people. Why would you do that? Which is the third all that we have here. So that by all means I might save some. You know, the saving of a soul is worth the effort. The saving of a soul is worth the effort. Well, that's, yes, it is, Pastor Steve, and we hope, we, we hope that you have success with that. How many of us like to get out of our comfort zone? Hand raising? Okay. How many, we love, I love get out of my comfort zone. It's like the old joke, how many Christians does it take to change a light bulb? 
change. <laughs> We're not so good at that, are we? We get all comfy in our, in our little church and our little groups and our little, our little homes where Jesus is Lord and we can kind of do things and hope he comes back today. So comfy, isn't it? Don't you feel comfortable here tonight? People love you. We're safe in this, these walls. We're all, this, is, this is like the rapture shoot. We're all going to heaven. Everything's good. Meanwhile, tonight, you don't have to go very far, radius from this place right here. How many, how many thousands of people within three miles of here, their destiny is hell? And that's the great irony, isn't it? Here we are just, I mean, if we turn the volume up, which I would love sometime, sufficiently, they might even actually be able to hear us out there. We have the message that saves. And yet, they don't hear. I remember Mark Cahill saying when he was here that uh, if it doesn't matter in 100 years, it doesn't matter. If it doesn't matter in 100 years, it doesn't matter. What matters 100 years from right now? Think about it. In your life, what really matters? Immediately... A lot of the things that we cared about today go off the list, don't they? Because it, it doesn't matter. The thing that matters 100 years from now, at least for us, is eternal destiny. And the eternal destiny of my spouse and my children and my neighbor and my coworker and the student who sits next to me in, 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 uh, in algebra and... Whoever else you want to put on that sort of sphere of influence list, that's what matters, doesn't it? So since that's what matters, what are we unwilling to do in non-moral categories, in neutral categories, in order to reach people? That's what Paul is saying here. I, have, I will become anything for anybody if by doing that... It means that I am actually able to save some of them. The heart for people and the heart to see them come to faith, it's vitally important. And this is why I think one indication of whether I value people in the gospel is how willing am I to socially flex, adapt to where they are at? That person, that ethnic group, that community. I would say to you that if their destiny is not important to us, we will not be that willing to flex to them and to adapt to where they are at. And then we get all comfy here because their destiny doesn't matter that, too much, that much to us, you know. Um, we're just here. We're good. But when we care about what's going to happen to the world and to the community, spiritually speaking, now this is a great motivation to be creative and innovative in the way that we do ministry. And it's not just, oh, yes, the church. It is the church, but it is us individually. The success of this is much less dependent upon how well the church organizes the effort as it is upon the grassroots within the church, people having a heart in your neck of the woods and mine as well. This is the key, a heart 
And when churches do not care about what happens in the community around them, they lose vision and become inwardly focused. They, they, they get a perspective where they need to come to us. Are you reaching the community? The, so, the time of the services is on the sign. If they'd like to know something about it, they're welcome to come anytime. The doors are open. We're open on Sundays. That's our, that's our evangelistic uh, outreach perspective. We're open on Sundays. Y'all come. If you don't, tough luck. Your fault. You can lead a horse to water. You can't make them drink, Pastor. You can't make them drink. You see how this misses the point of what Paul is saying? He is not saying we need them to become like us. We need them to come to us. He is saying, I will go to anybody and I will become whatever it takes in a non-moral category to try to reach them. That's what he's saying. So, this should motivate us. If you're looking for motivation, it is that I might save some. The salvation of a soul is worth the effort. So that's the key verse, verse 22. If you get that, now you can get the other things that he says here, which I want to walk through with you, because he gives some categories of flexibility. How should the church and how should we, what categories should we look to to flex and adapt and to build bridges with the community around us? Here's the first one is cultural flexibility. Look at verse 20. He says to the Jews... I become as a Jew in order to win Jews. You don't take the strategy to reach Gentiles and apply it to the Jews. Nor do you take the strategy to reach Jews and apply it to the Gentiles. You have to become like a Jew to reach the Jews. Now, here he is making a distinction. This is why I say cultural flexibility. He makes a distinction in the next verse about Jewish religion. He's not talking about the religiously Jewish. He's talking about the culturally Jewish. Those that are Jewish in maybe ethnicity. Uh, and so it takes a unique perspective to reach the Jews. I want to say something else here, just in case somebody might misunderstand what I'm saying. Paul never accommodated the essence of the gospel to reach anybody. The gospel is the gospel. It doesn't matter where you go. It is the same. But the way that you present it and the bridges with which you use to present it are as flexible as the cultures of the world. And this is what we've got to be smart enough to realize, and Paul clearly was. So, for example, when Paul went to a Jewish synagogue, like in Pisidian Antioch in Acts 13, uh, he didn't say, like the Greek poets say, that's what he said when he was in Athens in Acts 17, talking to the Greek philosophers. Why? Because the Greek philosophers read the Greek poets. When he went in Acts 13 to uh, the Jews in the synagogue, he quoted from the Old Testament. Now, why would you talk from the Old Testament with a group of Jewish people? Because they believe the Old Testament to be the word of God and authority. So you can build an argument and build a bridge from the Old Testament to the Jews. In fact, this week I was out to dinner with Wes and Lori Tabor right here in the fourth row. Wes and Lori had a ministry called Life in Messiah. It's an international ministry uh, seeking to reach uh, Jews with the gospel. And they were sharing with me about how they are excited about a new uh, ministry center that they have in Brooklyn, right in the heart of the Jewish section of 
New York, they have this ministry center. And they're excited about it because they're right in, they're, they're in the midst of them. And from that place, they can build friendships, relationships, have conversations with people. They were talking with me about how they use Isaiah 53 on the street corners. As an example, they say in Isaiah 53, who was the suffering servant? And a good Jew knows Isaiah 53. And there's really basically two options as they related to me this week. It's either a nation or it's a person. And if it is a person, might it be Yeshua? Might it be Jesus? You see, you begin where they are at. What they are not doing at the Jewish center is they're not serving ham and bacon at the, for the lunch. And there's not a sign out front that says, Jesus is the Messiah, what's your problem? Or, you know, we're Gentiles, come in if you'd like to be like us or something. They, what? No. You would never do that, right? And yet, if you think about it, how much of our ministry in the community is almost like that? We don't start where they're at. We want them to come to where we are so that then we can tell them about the gospel. You see how we have, we so often have this reversed. Or we think that the best thing to do in evangelism is to ask them to come to church. Because we all know if they come to church, then they'll see how wonderful we are and they'll want to be like us. No. Probably not, in fact. That's not effective. Why? Because we've got to meet people where they are at. We are the ones who become, who flex to them. So the starting point is where the audience is at. Become a Jew to reach the Jews. Or a Russian to reach the Russians. Or a Northwest Indianian to reach Northwest Indianians. That's what we need to do. How well are we doing it? How well are you doing it in your neck of the woods? The salvation of a soul is worth the effort. So cultural flexibility. What's their culture? Ask those questions. How can I build bridges within the culture of trust, communication, all the rest? Secondly, religious flexibility. And in this uh, category, he has two subcategories. You have the unsaved religious, and then you have the unsaved non-religious or irreligious. And the same thing is true uh, today in our community. There are people that are very religious, but by our belief structure and beliefs, they are not saved because they do not believe in Christ. So they are religious, but they are, they are unsaved. And then there's all the people that are out there who just have really no uh, care at all about religion and are enjoying the ending of the Notre Dame game right now. So in these two categories, Paul has something to say to both of them. First of all, what do we do with the unsaved religious? Look at verse 20. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. Now here he is talking about This is now the religious aspect of Judaism. Not the ethnic or the cultural, but the religious. The Old Testament, the law here is the Old Testament. So let me just give you a very quick, very quick summary of the Old Testament law. The Old Testament can be divided really, in terms of the commands, can be divided into three broad categories. First of all, you have the moral commands of the Old Testament, summarized in the Ten Commandments. Secondly, you have the civic commands, and these related to how Israel should function as a nation. 
And the third is you have the ceremonial commands, which this is all of that sacrificial system. And if you sin this way, you go and do this, the feasts, the festivals, and all the rest. So with moral, civic, and ceremonial commands in the Old Testament, the New Testament comes with the coming of Jesus Christ. And when he came, he abolished, fulfilled the civic and the ceremonial commands of the Old Testament. He now, he, he has come. There is no need for another sacrifice. He is the once for all, referencing now our series in Hebrews and all that we learn there. Check out Hebrews chapter 9. We don't need to make sacrifices anymore. There is no need for more priesthood. He is the one sacrifice, the one priest, prophet, priest, and king. So, since that is the case, and now the moral commands remain, by the way, in the new covenant, and we are still under the moral commands of God because they reflect God's character. They tell us how to be live in a way that's pleasing to him, and they remind us of how sinful we are, leading us to grace. The moral commands of God remain. Paul here says, he's talking about those that are under the law. In other words, Christ has come, but they are still trying to merit favor with God by living according to those Old Testament commands. How do you reach people who think that the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, is the way to have a relationship with God? Paul says, you know what I do? I become like one of them. Now, in that, he doesn't agree with them doctrinally. But he meets them where they are at, and he makes sure that in the way that he is living and ministering, he is not unnecessarily offending them, because there is no little offense that is worth getting in the way of the big thing, which is reaching them with the gospel. So, for example, here's three examples of what he did in Acts 16. He didn't have to do this, but so that it wasn't an offense, he had Timothy circumcised. Now, you may not think that's a big thing, but it was to Timothy. <laughs> Secondly, in Acts 21, he willingly participated in a purification ceremony of the, old, of the Old Covenant. So that they could know that he wasn't trying to speak against the Old Testament. And then, when speaking to Jews, he would present Jesus as the Messiah from the Old Testament. Now, there would probably be some people that would say, oh, he is such a sellout. He should just stand strong. He should just preach the gospel. Don't even worry about those kind of things. But that's what Paul is saying and what he's saying to us here tonight. There are things that are not that important that we can accommodate religious people even so that we can begin a discussion with them. Now, this has lots of challenges, and even as I talk about it, I get a little nervous because I can hear some of you going, well, what about this and what about that? And I don't know the answer to all those things, but there are challenges with this because when you're talking with somebody that is religious, let's say it's a Hindu or a New Ager or even an, a, a devout atheist, which is a kind of religion, there are some things that we hold in common with them, and there are many things that we do not. And so this is a thorny, difficult Thing to do. But there are some things that can be bridges to having a conversation with them. For example, uh, religions of the world value human life. And this is where sometimes, for example, the abortion discussion is a place where religious, different religions can have a little bit of a shared perspective. And maybe that could be a platform for further discussions, a building of trust and relationship. I think of human sexuality 
is a similar category in the debate that's going on in our culture where we would have a lot more in common with a religious person on that issue than we would with an irreligious one. And maybe there might be some way that there could be a bridge built there not to embrace their worldview, but to share the gospel. And this is where you're going to have to be creative in your own sphere because I don't know who you're talking to or who your neighbor is and what their religion is and all the rest. But to think about how can I respect their perspective? Don't get in there and go, oh, you, I don't know how you, how could you ever be one of those? Do not start the discussion that way, right? Now you've just offended them. I also would say that it seems to me that too often we immediately go to the things that we disagree with them about. So we meet a, let's say it's a, you know, pick, pick your religion. Um, I'm a little nervous too right now, actually. <laughs> but uh, if you were to, if you were to um, meet a, a, a Hindu, for example, who is a very religious and devout, they pray, they have ceremonies and, and all the rest, um, and you say, you think there's more than one God? What's your problem? Well, actually, 300 million. <laughs> there's one. Right away to the point of disagreement. I would suggest that may not be the wisest approach. How can I become like a Hindu in the sense that I am going to where he or she is at in their life and in their faith? Find some commonality of some kind that builds trust in some way, relationship, perhaps from that perspective, to be able to share Christ with them. That's what we're talking about. So honor their culture, honor their heritage, earn the right to be heard. The second category is the um, unsaved, unreligious. He says this in verse 21, to those outside the law, I become as one outside the law, not because, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Now, to be outside the law here means that they have no familiarity with the scriptures, the commands of God. They are just sort of out there. They are, they are the secular person. They live without any God, without any transcendent standard. How do we approach these kind of people? Here's the thing. There is one, I'm saying one thing tonight. Paul says one thing. I become all things to all people so that I might save some of them. That's what you do here. Here you have somebody, they have no religion whatsoever. They could care less. What do you do? You do the same thing. You go to where they are at in their life and seek to relate to them where they are at. And by the way, increasingly, this is the category that we are dealing with in America. You know, there was a time in the past where there was a basic sort of consensus, a moral, maybe a general moral consensus or an ethos in America where people had at least a basic understanding of a Judeo-Christian ethic and morality. Now, back in the day, I know contrary to what the old timers will say, people were still getting drunk and sleeping around and lying to each other and stabbing each other in the back and doing all the things that mankind has done now for thousands of years. But as they did that, because of the moral consensus, they had this sense in their heart that maybe they shouldn't. Now, they still did, but they knew that they probably shouldn't. Today, people, um, you know, uh, 
sleep around and stab each other in the back and, and lie to one another and are greedy and all the things. But there isn't that sense in them generally that they're doing anything wrong. They are living without a transcendent standard. And they don't want a transcendent standard, by the way. This is why the whole thing with the Ten Commandments being publicly displayed is such an issue. What, what is the issue really with the Ten Commandments? Is it that they are religious? No, it is that they are absolute. God has said, thou shalt not. The secular living outside of the law, they don't want a transcendent standard. Like, just think, if the commandments were reversed, how might it be different? Take the Lord's name in vain. Sleep with as many people as you can. Be violent towards one another when you need to. Lie when convenient. Desire all that your neighbor has. If those were the Ten Commandments, they'd hang them on every banner and everywhere. No problem. We love that. Could you get a bigger font on that? I think it'd be better. Why? Because it's just confirming the way that we want to live. But those outside the law, they don't want that. And so they're coming at the whole discussion from a totally different perspective. And that's the culture we live in. I think of Star Wars 3 and the return of the Sith where Anakin Skywalker and Obi-Wan are about to do battle. And, and Anakin makes a statement and his, Obi-Wan's response to him is, only Siths deal in absolutes. Only Siths deal in in absolutes. Now, besides that being an absolute statement, it summarizes the culture of the people that are living next door to you and me. They do not want absolutes, even gods. So how do we reach them? We can say, oh, those bad people, we can't believe that they live that way. We would be the same way if we didn't have Christ in our lives. Amen? Total pagans without Jesus. Amen? Sinning to the max if God's grace was not in your life. Amen? Okay. So, we're not looking our noses down on these people. This, they are where we would be were it not for the grace of God. But how do we reach them? What do we do? How do we get to those outside the law? This is, again, a very tough question. And I don't pretend to be um, an expert in it by any means. But here's where the principle, I think, is helpful that Paul was talking about. We need to build bridges with them. And there are all kinds of bridges that we have with these people in our community because they are living life just like we are. So here are some examples of some possible bridges. Education, meals, family celebrations, pop culture, compassion moments of illness, death, financial need, family crisis, mutual interests and hobbies, national celebrations, National sad moments, religious holidays, marital trials, and on and on I could go. In fact, when I said, isn't it cool that we're going to have the Northwest Indiana Symphony doing Handel's Messiah? Did any of you think, well, why are we having the symphony come to our church? I don't understand what that's about. Like, what would the point of that be? Pagans playing music at church. Well, let me just tell you. One... Beauty is its own reason. Number two, art and culture is a wonderful point of reference. It's going to be a community event. Okay? It's a community event. A beautiful community event. And 
So we get to do that and to build bridges and to serve the community and all the rest. It's hard to see a downside to it. And that's the thing. Non-religious people are all the same. Here's what we know about anybody, even if they have no religion and they, they act like they don't care. They are image bearers made in the image of God, which means that they are made by God with a longing for him. It can be suppressed, it can be denied, but it is there. We do not save anybody. We merely share the message that the Holy Spirit can use so that some might be saved. That's our role. How well are we doing it? In fact, I would say to you, and this is uh, really my last point here tonight, is that this is just like Missions 101. If you went to Moody Bible Institute, say, you know what, I'm going to go serve God. I'm going to go to Moody Bible Institute. You took Missions 101. Third day of class. They would say, okay, let me just tell you broadly, how do you reach people? Number one, you love them. Which means that you have to be with them. Number two, you live the culture. If you go to China, you eat with chopsticks. You wear the clothes, you talk the lingo, if they're into soccer, you get into soccer. If the whole country is wild and crazy about blueberries, you eat blueberries because you love them and you want to be with them. You want to become one of them. Third, you talk the language, okay? You talk the language. You seek to communicate the gospel in a way that they can understand. It would be foolish to go and to communicate in a way that they cannot understand. So that means you have to understand what they understand so that they can understand what you want them to understand. And fourth is you reach the people. You reach the people. Now, I kind of lived this with my brother, Scott, who is a missionary in South America, Paraguay. Uh, he, uh, six, seven years ago decided that, uh, they were going to go to, to Paraguay. And so guess what they did? Here's what they did. First thing they did is they moved to Costa Rica and they went to language school and lived in Costa Rica for a year so that they could talk the language. Then they moved to Paraguay and they began to learn the culture and the little traditions and the things about Paraguayan culture, and they did all that they could to become Paraguayan. And I will tell you, one of the particularly nasty things about the Paraguayan culture is uh, a tradition, it's a huge big deal in Paraguay, called Tetaday, and it's a drink that the whole country drinks, but here's the thing about it, they drink together out of the same straw. That they, it's a metal straw that they perhaps wash maybe once a year or something, use it every day. You go to the mall, you go everywhere, they pass it around. This is how I know that I am not called to Paraguay, is that I don't know that I could do that. But, you know, guess what my brother and his family just sort of had to do? They had to just suck it up, literally, <laughs> and, to, and, to, and to drink it and to just and to smile as they did it. Why? Because we love you. And we want to reach you for Christ. 
So missions 101. We send out any missionary from our church. That's what we expect them to do. Now here's my question tonight. What do we expect of ourselves? What do we expect of ourselves? How do we reach our Jerusalem? Now, you can sort of fill in the blank there in your own, what, you're, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing? How are you approaching it? Or Bethel Church, how are we doing this exactly? And what I want to say is that this is not rocket science. That what every person from Paul on has had to do in order to become that person to reach them is exactly what we need to do here in our Jerusalem. Is to become Northwest Indianians and to go to where the people are at. Not to expect them somehow to come to us. And too often in churches, what happens is we actually, rather than loving the people, we distance ourselves from them. We put up these walls and this is our place. Rather than living the culture, we condemn the culture and we create our own little counter-Christian culture where we have our own little things and every activity is all Christians and we have our own little lingo and all the rest. We don't live the culture. We don't talk the language. And is it no surprise then that we do not reach the people? So who does the flexing? Who does the accommodating? It is not going to be the lost. Your neighbor is never going to come over and say, hey, I see that you're interested in Christianity. So for the sake of a relationship with you, I'll be interested in Christianity too. Okay? It's never going to happen. If your neighbor is into fishing, then guess what? I'd get a little interested in fishing. And if your neighbor's wife is all about Girl Scouts, and that's a big deal to her, buy cookies. Talk Girl Scouts. Find out why she cares about it and how her mom had her go when she was a kid and she's trying to pass this on to her daughter and how family is so important to her and love and all kinds of bridges there. If our community is talking about crime, flooding, school dropout rates, high school football, water pollution in Lake Michigan, let's be a part of that conversation. We go to where they are in order to reach them. Any decent missionary and every effective church will love the people, live the culture, talk the language, reach the people. And we must do the same in order for us to become all things to all people so that by all means we might save some. Amen, Bethel Church? Amen.